go to their church. And he said, oh, okay, well, what, what is that? And I said, I need an invitation because if I don't get an invitation, people look at me funny when I show up to preach. So all I need is an invitation. There are some preachers and singers and others that'll say, I need a lot of money to come. And uh, one of the reasons I tell that joke is that's what people think I'm going to say. And, uh, and all I need is an invitation, and I'm there if I can be there. And I want to thank you for the privilege of being with, with your wonderful congregation. And I hope you know the jewel that you have in your pastor. And I hope that you will love him and pray for him and support him. Um, when a pastor knows the church is with him, the ministry is a pleasure. The opposite is also true. <laughs> so I hope that you will love on your pastor and his family and bless them as you have opportunity. Um, my time with you this week has been such a blessing. I, I wish that I could be with you even more. Uh, it has just been such a, a wonderful time together. And, uh, and I wish my wife could be with you. My wife is a real pretty woman. And you would see her and you would say, what, what, what were you thinking when you, when you wound up with this guy? And uh, all I know is I did real good. I mean, real good. And my two daughters are beautiful young ladies, 19 and 17. They're in love with Jesus. And I'm grateful for that. And, and they both are active in, in ministry as God opens doors. My older daughter spent the summer last year in New York City, fresh out of high school, wow. serving alongside the church that we partner with. And my younger daughter uh, last year and then this coming summer will spend two weeks ministering to mentally challenged adults, giving their families a break and doing what we have in Tennessee with our special friends camp. And so both of my daughters are just in love with Jesus and looking for ways to serve him. And so I wish that you could meet them, perhaps in due time. Have you ever noticed how even the nicest people, good Christian people, turn evil when you play a game of Monopoly? <laughs> Now, boys and girls, Monopoly is a board game. In the days long before the Wii and the Xbox and other electronic games, we played games that took place on a board. There were no electrical cords or anything. But seriously, whenever we play Monopoly, it's like all of our wholesome values go out the window. You realize what the object of Monopoly is. You can be playing Monopoly against your grandmother. And, and you will try to take advantage of her. The goal of Monopoly is to accumulate more money, more property than anybody else in the game and basically bankrupt everybody else in the game. That is the goal of Monopoly. And, and it's amazing how evil we can become when we play Monopoly, but that's the goal of Monopoly. It's baseball season. You understand what the goal of a game of baseball is? It is for your team to, to score more points than the other team. You want to keep them from scoring, but you want to score more points than they do so that you can win the game. That is the goal of baseball. What I'm getting at is that we all understand the concept of goals, and we all want to, to know what the goal is of, of those things that we're doing. So tonight I want to preach a message that I'm just simply calling the goal of salvation. What is it that, that we're saved for or unto? Why are we saved? What's, what's the goal of salvation? And I'm using a New Testament verse, one of my favorites, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19. If you have your Bibles with you, why don't you go ahead and be finding your way there. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19. If you were to play a board game with me, you would find that I am a stickler for the rules. I am a Pharisee when it comes to the rules of board games. I've got the, the game top in my hands and I am calling out everybody who dares to violate the rules and I'm informing everybody what the rules are and you got to play in accordance with the rules. That's why we got rules. 
You say, oh, you're one of those kind of people. Well, maybe I am, but I, I gotta tell you, I wanna know what the rules are, and I wanna know what the goal of the game is, and I want to move toward the goal of the game as best we can. I mean, did you ever ask in math class, why are we doing this? Especially in some of the higher mathematics. I majored in mathematics in college. And there were many times I was wondering, why on earth are we doing this? In fact, I asked my professor on a number of occasions, where on earth would we ever use this? And she would say, well, you would not use this on earth, but it would be applicable in space. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I don't ever plan on going there, and I don't understand. But I had to have it in order to graduate with my bachelor's in math. But, but we all want to know, what is the goal? Why are we doing this? We want to know what the goal of salvation is. Even if we don't know that we want to know the goal of salvation, we need to know the goal of salvation. Galatians 4.19, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. One of my all-time favorite Verses. I've got a handful of verses that have literally shaped the course of my spiritual life. And Galatians 4.19 is one of those verses. My little children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. If it sounds as if we have picked up in the middle of a sentence, in the middle of a conversation that the Apostle Paul is having, it would be because we have. You see, at the heart of Paul's letter to the Galatians is his concern over the Galatians' spiritual welfare. He is very protective of them because on his first missionary journey, the Apostle Paul, along with Barnabas, started at least four churches in the southern part of the Galatian province. They planted churches in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. You can read about that in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And he maintained a sense of responsibility for these churches that he had planted. Much like a pastor has a sense of responsibility for the congregation. I know that there are church members who, who, who rebuff the idea that their pastor is their spiritual leader, but that is exactly the way the Bible describes the role of a pastor. He has a responsibility. He is the shepherd under the Lord's leadership to lead the congregation toward spiritual growth and, and the fulfillment of the Great Commission and being everything that God wants them to be. And so the Apostle Paul had this, had this pastoral sense of responsibility. He planted the churches, and there were, there were pastors that were put in place to lead those churches, but because he was the founding pastor, he could not let them go. I mean, he, it's not that he meddled in their business. He just, he just always had this, this uh, parental kind of affection for the churches that he had planted. And it was certainly true, as he writes this letter to the, to, to the Galatians, he had led so many of them to the Lord, he, he just could not ignore them and stay away. But somewhere along the way, false teachers, after the Apostle Paul had left, false teachers had crept into these Galatian congregations and had begun teaching falsehood in these congregations, specifically what was being taught by these false teachers who were actually called, we, we call them now, you don't find this word in the New Testament, but they were called Judaizers. And what the Judaizers taught was that you had to become Jewish before you could become Christian. Christianity was birthed out of Judaism. And so in her infancy, almost everybody who was a Christian had come out of Judaism. And so Christianity was very much flavored by Judaism. It looked Jewish, it sounded Jewish, it acted Jewish because it had come out of Judaism. But then all of a sudden you have some, some folk like Cornelius who, who, who were not Jewish getting saved. And then the question starts coming around, well, must a person obey Jewish dietary laws and observe the Jewish calendar and go through all the rites and regulations and rituals of Judaism in order to be a Christian? And the Christian church had to grapple with that issue. And where they settled was that, no, you must not have, you, you don't have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. However, there were some Jews who had believed the gospel, put that in quotation marks, and had become preachers of the gospel, put that in quotation marks, 
But when they went to preach the gospel, they said, you must confess and believe and repent. And you must also become Jewish. Because if you are not Jewish in your Christianity, you're not Christian. Now, I don't know if that rings a bell with anybody here tonight. I don't know if that sounds like anything modern to you or not, but, but there are a lot of folk today that come along preaching a gospel that is all about Jesus plus something else. That you, that you believe in Jesus, but you've also got to do this and this and this, and, and if you don't do this and this and this, then you're not really saved, and they end up adding to the gospel message in the process. The Apostle Paul is and throughout the book of Galatians, one of my favorite books in the New Testament, for one reason, or one reason that it's one of my favorite books in the New Testament, is that the Apostle Paul clarifies for us how important it is that we believe the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ, and we understand that that is how we are saved. It is, it is a great banner cry for the call of the gospel upon Christians and upon the church today because we are always, not just in the first century, but we are always under the threat of somebody adding something to the gospel and making something extra beyond the gospel a requirement that God does not require. And the Apostle Paul sees this happening in the churches of Galatia, and so he writes this letter to the churches in Galatia to try to correct what these Judaizers have corrupted. These Galatian believers have been manipulated into marching in lockstep with the Judaizers, and Paul refused to stand on the sideline and say nothing or to do nothing. And so he wrote, My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. He took on a maternal tone. It's, it's as if he's saying that when I was with you before, when I was with you, when you got saved, when I was with you in the beginning, it was as if I gave birth to you. He would have said something like, my little children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is born in you. But that was just the beginning step. That's just where they started. Now Paul is saying it's not enough simply to be born. I am still in labor. A maternal tone, almost like a pregnant woman trying to give birth. I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. The first labor pains were when they initially trusted Christ as their Savior, and the churches in those towns in Galatia were born, brought into existence. They came to saving faith. But his words that he spoke to these Galatian believers hold a very important place for us in the church today. And what he says flies in the face of a lot of contemporary evangelism efforts. Most witnesses, especially Baptists, I think we're probably some of the world's worst about this, but many witnesses would say that their labor, their evangelism, many churches would say that what we do, we do, we are in labor until Christ is born in people. Do you realize we've got a little saying about, about this very thing? We, we say that when people get saved in our church, we dip them and we what? Drop them. We dip them and drop them. And, and, and the, reason, the reason that is important is that we, we see the baptism as the climax. We see the baptism as the end of the journey. Hey, we finally got them to pray the prayer to receive Christ, and now we're getting them baptized, and now we're going to move on to somebody else. And we dip them and we drop them as if Paul's emphasis is simply for Christ to be born in someone. But the Apostle Paul would disagree with that. He's saying, I'm not content with Christ simply being born in someone. My little children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. I feel like a pregnant woman, Paul says, laboring until that time comes that Christ is formed in you. What is the goal of salvation? I mean, that's one of the things that we work for, we work toward, one of the things we celebrate. We want people to pray to receive Christ. 
If we're followers of Christ, there was a point in time when we turned away from self and sin and we bowed the knee before the Lord and we, we surrendered our hearts to Jesus and we were saved and, and now we've experienced God's salvation. I mean, w w most of us have experienced that. But why does God bring us to that point of conversion? Why do we work so fervently as the church to lead people to Jesus? What is the goal of salvation? Perhaps it would help us to clarify what the goal is not. And it might surprise you what I'm about to tell you tonight. Because the goal of salvation is not to go to heaven. A lot, of folk, a lot of folk talk about their salvation experience in these terms. I was sitting in church and I was listening to this preacher preach about hell and all of a sudden I just got real hot. And I'm telling you, I just began to think about how terrible hell would be. And I knew I didn't want to go to hell. And so I ran down that altar and I prayed that prayer and praise the Lord, I'm going to heaven now. Well, you know what? A fear of hell is not enough to go to heaven. A lot of people are afraid of hell. I get worn out by these church members who write me ugly letters. They don't ever sign them. But they write me ugly letters. By the way, don't be one of those church members that writes ugly letters to your pastor and refuses to sign it. If you've got something to say to your pastor, sign the letter. Every now and then you get one of those letters that's signed, but it doesn't say anything. It just says stupid. I don't know why they signed their name and didn't put anything in the content of the letter, but, you know, anyway. But sometimes people send me those ugly letters and, and they, they complain that, that I don't preach about hell every Sunday. And, and I'm kind of disturbed by people who like the smell of sulfur and uh, who long for home and wish that they could hear about home every Sunday. I, that kind of stuff drives me bonkers. Preacher, you believe in hell? I do believe in hell. But people better be motivated by something more than the fires of hell in order to go to heaven. Amen. Amen. And simply, people say, well, if you can scare them out of hell... What, I mean, what, what better thing could you do? Listen, just because somebody's afraid of going to hell doesn't mean they're willing to bow the knee before the Lordship of Jesus Christ and follow Christ and love Christ and serve Christ. I really think that's why we got a bunch of carnal, ungodly, lazy church members in our churches today is because they went through the motions to pray a prayer because they didn't want to go to hell or maybe they wanted to go to heaven but they didn't want to follow Jesus. I don't even know why some people want to go to heaven because they're not interested in the things of God in their here and now. They don't love Jesus in the here and now. I don't know why they'd want to be around Jesus in the there and then. If you don't love Jesus now, what makes you think you're going to love Jesus then? If you don't love the bride of Christ now, what makes you think you're going to love the bride of Christ then? The goal of salvation is not to miss hell and make heaven. Mm. Now let me say, because I realize the risk that I run of being misunderstood. Heaven is a beautiful part of the package. And God is very gracious in salvation to welcome us into his family and adopt us into his family. And when we close our eyes in death in this life, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Amen. One of these days, you're going to hear that I have died. You might read it in the obituary. Your pastor may even stand before you and say, you remember that preacher that came to our church and preached that time? Well, he has died. I want you to know, don't believe it. Amen. Because I will be more alive at that point than Amen. I ever was Amen. in this body. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I look forward to heaven. I love to read about heaven. I love to sing about heaven. I love to talk about heaven. You're going to think I'm a weirdo, but I love to preach funerals for Christian folk. <laughs> I'm not real keen on preaching funerals for, for unsaved people or people that I don't know. And I, I've told all the funeral homes, man, if you've if you got families that don't have a pastor, you call me and I'll be here. And I'm telling you, 
more and more and more funerals I'm preaching. I'm preaching for people who have no pastor. It just breaks my heart. But I love to preach funerals for Christians because I love to brag on Jesus and I love to talk about heaven. And so please don't misunderstand me tonight. Part of being saved is that in the end we will be with Jesus who is our Savior and who will be our Lord. I'm simply saying that a fear of hell is not enough to take you to heaven when you die. The goal of salvation is more than just missing hell. The goal of salvation is more than making money. If you, if you listen to some of these preachers preach on television, every time I say this, I think, well, we're on television, but you know, we're, we're not national, we're just kind of local. But, but to hear a lot of these preachers preach on television that if you'll just get right with God, then God will make you rich. If you'll just do, if you'll just follow Jesus and you'll just obey Jesus and you'll send me a thousand dollars, God will send you a thousand fold. And so people will put a thousand dollars on a credit card, thousand dollars they don't even have, and send to some preacher believing that they're going to get a million dollars in return. And to hear some of these people talk, following Jesus is all about satisfying some carnal, fleshly, financial, worldly desire. That is not at all what it means to be saved. Some people want to get saved in order to enter into the privileges of church membership. Sometimes this happens with children. Lord's, Lord's Supper takes place and the plates are passed and the cup goes around and, and, and the children are looking. And, and I always try to say, I don't always, I shouldn't say always, but I, I usually try to say that if your children don't know the Lord, then please help them to learn the integrity of the Lord's Supper by letting the plate pass them and let them observe because you might think it's cute to let children take the Lord's Supper and all of that, but if they don't have a relationship with Christ, then that is meaningless right. to them, and so they need to wait. And so sometimes children will come up after we do the Lord's Supper and they'll say something like, how could I, how could I take the Lord's Supper? And I say, well, you know, this is something that Christians do and and you know try to put it on their terms and they'll say well then I want to be baptized so that I can do that too but in truth sometimes grown-ups see certain privileges in church membership and they say well I want to do that I want to teach or or I want to be a deacon or or I want to to be up there on the platform I want to have a say in the church and they end up going through the motions of praying a prayer saying they get saved in order to have the privileges of church membership but even that is not enough in order to save you because that's not what the gospel is about so what is the goal of salvation? It's not to miss hell and to make heaven. It's not to make money. It's not just to get privileges of church membership. What is the goal of salvation? It is Christ being formed in you. It is our lives being transformed by the grace and the goodness of God through Jesus Christ. Into Christ-likeness. What God does in salvation is, and, and I addressed this Sunday night in talking about the image of God that has been distorted and perverted by sin. In Christ, that image of God that may be covered under layers of vulgarity, profanity, or, or even good works. It's, it's, it's layered in there, buried in there beneath other things. In Christ, the image of God is restored to its original design. Originally, we were created, humans were created in the image of God to resemble God so that we could represent God. And in Christ's likeness, that image of God that has been distorted by sin is restored to resemble God, to resemble Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, to resemble God so that we can represent God. And so in salvation, we are taking on the character of Jesus Christ. In salvation, we are taking on the characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to ask ourselves, even tonight, in this sermon, in this service, we ought to ask ourselves, really, really, how much does my life look like and sound like and act like Jesus? 
Can people see Christ in me? Do you know that the term Christian is only found three times in the whole, in the whole Bible? Three times. Two times, it's most definitely used as a slur. It's, it's, it's in a very negative sense. The third could be positive or negative or even neutral. But it's only used three times, and the thrust of the term Christian, for instance, in Acts chapter 13, where believers were first called Christians in Antioch, in that instance, it's because they so resembled Jesus Christ that people began to nickname the followers of Christ as little Christs or Christ ones. And that's where the term Christian comes from. Because they so resembled Christ, they so identified with Christ. When people saw them, they thought of Jesus. I wonder if people see us and they see Jesus. We want to believe that that's the case. But I'm not sure that that's the case, and I'll give you the reason why. Why I think that. When I read the New Testament, when I read the Gospels, I see Jesus going through the crowds and offending the Pharisees and surprising the religious crowd, but have you ever noticed how sinners respond to Jesus in the Gospels? I mean, you've got prostitutes, you've got tax collectors, you've got the outcasts of society who make their way to Jesus. And they will, they will fight their way through a crowd just to get to Jesus. You've got people whose lives are broken by sin and they'll do anything they can to get to Jesus, even if it's just to touch the hem of his garment. They're going to get to Jesus. I don't see people like that running to the church today. And it might be that we have not opened our hearts and our arms to people in our society who have wrecked their lives, who have destroyed their lives. We've not opened our arms to them because their lives are an offense to us. The way they live, we don't agree with. The way they talk, we don't like. And we, and we, you know, we're real compassionate about it. If you want to change, if you want to clean up your hack, you're more than welcome to come to our church. But would they be welcome to come and to worship with you? Not that too long ago, I had a young man who made an appointment with me, came to my office, and I knew that, I knew that he had attended our church before, and he... Um, he said, this won't take long. I just need to ask you a question. He said, am I welcome in your church? And I said, sure. He said, well, let me qualify that. I'm a practicing homosexual. Am I welcome in your church? And I said, my answer is the same. Sure. You're welcome in our church. And probably right now somebody's thinking, you, you, you let people like that come to your church? We sure do. And we let adulterers come to our church. We let drunkards come to our church. We let people who have absolutely destroyed their lives come to our church. You know why? Because we want them to come to Jesus. Jesus is the healer of broken hearts. Jesus is the healer of broken homes. Jesus is the only one who can restore his own image in their lives. And if we don't open our hearts and open our arms and welcome them into the house of God. How much like Jesus do we look? I mean, what was, the, what was the chief complaint against Jesus? He's a friend of sinners. He dares to eat with tax collectors. Does he not know that the woman who is crying on his feet and wiping his toes with her hair and pouring expensive perfume on his feet, does he not know that this woman is a prostitute? Does he not know what kind of people that he is eating with? That's what the Pharisees said about him. Think about what was. Jesus knew exactly what kind of people they were, but he also knew exactly what kind of people the Pharisees were. 
Because the Pharisees had this external form of religion they said, I'm going to obey the rules very rigidly, and I've got these rules to obey because faith is a bunch of do's and don'ts, rules and regulations. And, and, and a good Jewish man, a good Pharisee would pray every day, God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile. Thank you that I'm not a woman. Jesus even told a story about a, about a, a, a tax collector and a Pharisee who went to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee prayed, oh, God, I thank you that, I, that I'm not this, and I thank you I'm not like that tax collector over there. But the tax collector, not even willing to lift his head, beat his breast and said, Oh God, forgive me, the sinner. Jesus said, Who do you think went home that day justified? You can imagine that the Pharisee, up to the point of the punchline, the Pharisee was feeling kind of good about himself. Yep, I did that just the other day. And yet when Jesus gave the punchline, the Pharisee would have been completely humiliated. Because all of a sudden, you're telling me that I am not the one Who's just about you telling me that the tax collector, this this one who has betrayed his own race to be employed by the Roman government to take our taxes and give to a godless government, you're telling me that this person's gonna get into heaven before me? And the Pharisees had their very rigid religion. And Jesus said, That's not at all what it means right. to look like me, to follow me. We really ought to ask ourselves, do I love people the way that Jesus loved people? I mean, when the woman caught in the very act of adultery, John chapter 8, is brought to Jesus by these men with stones in hand. Interestingly, they didn't bring the man. And, you know, and I'm not an expert in these things. I'm really not. But the best I can figure, it takes two to tango. And there was a man involved. You see, that wasn't their point. That they bring this adulterous woman into Jesus' presence and they're ready to stone her. Does the law not say that adultery is a crime worth or deserving of murder? Or not murder, but of, of stoning? And Jesus, riding in the sand, rises and basically agrees with them. That's what the law says. And so, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. We often overlook the fact that Jesus was riding in the sand. John doesn't tell us what he was riding in the sand. I don't know what he was riding in the sand. But my sanctified imagination wonders. What if, when these men appeared on the scene, Jesus, already knowing what was about to happen, had already written these men's names in the sand and had listed their sins beneath their names. I'm not saying that's what it was. I, that's just my imagination. But let's just say that as Jesus wrote in the sand, he had written their names and all of their sins. And he rises and says, whoever has no sin is free to cast the first stone. The thing about it was, he was the only one who fit that bill. Mm-hmm. And the sound of grace began to sound like rocks falling to that sandy soil. And eventually there was no one left except Jesus and this woman caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus said, Woman, where are thine accusers? I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Are we willing to treat people like that? Are we willing to love people like that? Is that that what people feel and sense and experience when they encounter Bethel Baptist Church? Is that what they encounter when they come to Hilldale Baptist Church? We've got a young lady that's been coming to our church now for about six months, and she is an Iranian Muslim. We're in a military town. We've got, I mean, Fort Campbell, home of the 101st Airborne Division. We've got a lot of guys and ladies that are deployed into those Muslim nations. And here this lady comes with her friend every Sunday. When she comes out, I, I don't say hello, I don't say good morning, I say mahaba. And she just giggles because that's Arabic for hello. She went to one of our Sunday school classes. It's a Sunday school class that's a ladies' Sunday school class. The ladies were a little bit older than she is, but 
her friend that she comes with. She's been going to that class for some time. And, and here she is. She's a, she's a Muslim. She is a practicing Muslim. But she's interested enough in Christianity to come to church. And she sits like a, like a, like a, a student cramming for finals. I mean, she's just glued to everything that is said. Very interested. She's there every Sunday. She went to the Sunday school class, and something came up, and they asked for feedback. Don't ask for people to talk if you don't really want them to talk, you know? And so she began to speak from her vantage point. Well, in my faith, we believe da-da-da-da-da-da. And those ladies began to shout her down and to condemn her and to make her feel less than human. And her friend came to me and said, Oh, Brother Larry, I have taken her to a Sunday school class and she is never going back. I want you to know that broke my heart. That broke my heart. When I was on the state convention staff in Alabama, I was a member of East Memorial Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama. And I was hardly ever there, but that's where my membership was. I was out in the state preaching and teaching and all of that. But the word got to me about a, about a situation when Sunday a, a young man came into the service. And our sanctuary seated at least 1,000 people. And um, a young man came in at the back, and he sat on the very back row by himself. He wasn't bothering anybody. He wasn't causing any kind of any kind of, of, of confusion or, or chaos. I mean, he just came in after the service started and sat on the very back row. He also happened to be wearing a Marilyn Matson t-shirt that was very graphic. And one of our men took it upon himself to walk back to that back row. He said, young man, you are not welcome here. Hit the door. Word got to me about that after the fact, and the person told me wouldn't tell me who said that because he was afraid I was going to go get the guy. I wish that I, I, I wish, I wish that I could have said something to the guy. That, the man who went and told that young man to leave, he was speaking for the devil. Yes, he was. Because God was not telling that young man he was not welcome there. Satan was telling him that. Right. You say, well, you don't know why that young man was there? Well, neither did that guy. And until he demonstrates that he's there to cause a problem, he might just be there out of curiosity. He might just be there because the Holy Spirit of God has brought him to this place of worship. I believe that. You say, well, I've talked to people in our community, and, and you know, I mean, I, people today, they just, they just don't want to go to church. You know why that most people who don't go to church, you know why they say they don't want to come to church? Because they've already been. They've already been. And they were made to feel unwelcome. Now, in case it makes you nervous, we don't have homosexuals and adulterers and all that knowingly join our church. Church membership is another thing. Because church membership implies that we have turned away from sin and we're following Christ and we're baptized and seeking to live holy lives. But anybody and everybody should be welcome in any church. Yes, sir. I, I mentioned the other night about the church that I pastored down in South Mississippi, and it grieved my heart that people of, of other races were not welcome in that congregation. And I didn't shy away from just telling them regularly. I pastored there almost seven years. But I told them that this is a sin. And I don't really care what your granddaddy believed or what your granddaddy did. This is a sin. Jesus has torn down these walls. And if they are our brothers and sisters in Christ, then they are no different than anybody else. Amen. The goal of salvation is that we become like Jesus, taking on his character taking on his characteristics. I heard a sermon illustration years ago about a master sculptor was asked, how, how, how do you carve such precise sculpt, sculpt, um, sculptures 
out of stone. I mean, you, you, take, a, you take a block of stone and, and you create such detail and, and it's just such a perfect replica of reality. How do you do that? And the sculptor said, well, I take that block of stone and I chip away everything that doesn't look, what it, look like what it is that I'm trying to create. If I'm creating a horse, I chip away everything that doesn't look like a horse. If I'm creating a man, I'll chip away everything that doesn't look like a man. We are all but lifeless pieces of stone. But when Christ comes into our lives, God begins to chip away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. And if you could give a, a personality to that block of stone, you can imagine that every tap, every tap of the hammer, every, every notch of the chisel would be a painful experience. Sometimes it's a painful journey for God to chip away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. But every day, in order to look more like Jesus, every day we have to bow the knee before the Lordship of Christ to say, Lord, today, afresh and anew, not my will, but thy will be done. I don't want to do what I want to do. I want to do what you want me to do. And, and the more and more that we refuse to do that, the more and more we look less like Jesus. But every day that we will bow the knee before him and we will live in light of that surrender, we will look more and more like Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And so, what is there in your life and mine that reflects the image of Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible, by the way, not the Jesus of Hollywood, not the Republican Jesus or the Democrat Jesus, not the Jesus of the Quran, but the Jesus of the Bible. What is it that is in our lives that reflects the character and the characteristics of Jesus? People often tell my wife and me that our children look like us. And it really depends on who our children are with as to who you think they look like. If my children are with me, you think they look like me. If they're with their mama, you think they look like their mama. I like to tell people that my daughter's got their good looks from me <laughs> because their mama still has all of hers. <laughs> but you know why that our children look like us? Because by the grace of God, we created them. They're the products of this daddy and that mama. And as a result, our children look like their parents. Not exactly, but enough that you recognize you're, um, you're, you're the daughter of Beth Robertson. Beth Robertson's gotta be your mama. Larry Robertson's gotta be your daddy. My children get that kind of thing all the time. And in the same way, we ought to be as recognizable as a child of God Amen. as my children are as my children. Amen. Because we have been birthed by His Spirit. Do you realize that the Bible says in 1 John 3, 9, that the one who is born of God cannot go on living in sin? Because the seed of God has been planted in Him. The seed of God, that word is sperma, by the way, the seed of God has been planted in us. And just as if you take corn and plant it in the garden, don't expect cantaloupes to grow in its place. If you plant corn, expect corn to grow. If you plant cucumbers, expect cucumbers to grow. If you plant strawberries, expect strawberries to, go, if the, to grow. If the seed of God has been planted in your heart and mind, then we should expect, just as God expects, that godly character and godly characteristics are going to grow up out of our lives as a result of it. And if we are saved, then we cannot go on living in sin. 1 John 3, 9. And then Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. When we walk through that doorway of salvation, 
It is predestined by God that as children of God, we are going to be conformed to the image of His Son. And the refusal to conform to the image of His Son is more an indication that we are not truly saved than an indication that we're just, well, I'm just, I'm just what you call one of those worldly Christians. When people joke about that, that's no joking matter. If a person can joke, well, I'm just one of those backslidden Baptists, no, you're one of those lost Baptists is what you are. Now, every Christian has episodes of backsliding. Every Christian is going to struggle with the reality of sin. As long as there's blood coursing through our veins and oxygen pumping in and out of our lungs, as long as we are living, we are going to deal with the presence of sin in this world and in our lives. But God has given to us His resurrection power that enables us to be overcomers. And we don't have to bow down and fall prey to the, 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 the pressure and the reality of sin in our lives. The goal of God's salvation is that we become more like Jesus. Colossians 2, 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Well, preacher, I just don't want to go to hell. I mean, that's bottom line. That's why I'm here tonight. That's why I've been in this church all these years. I, I, I just don't want to go to hell. Well, not wanting to go to hell is not enough to get you into heaven. As virtuous as it is to not want to go to hell, it's not enough to get you into heaven because a threat of hell, if anything, is intended to cause you and me to bow the knee before the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ, before His power, His glory, and to surrender to His lordship in our lives. Not wanting to go to hell is not enough to go to heaven. Now I need to add a caveat to this as I bring this message to a close. I need to, I need to clarify something because there's always someone who's going to misunderstand or misinterpret what's meant by becoming more like Christ. I could preach a whole separate sermon on what I'm about to tell you, but I'm just going to give you the shortened version. There are two words that I want to draw your attention to as I bring this message to a close. They're the words legalism and license. They are the two extremes on the spiritual spectrum of salvation. Legalism and license. Many who preach the grace of God in order to be saved, and they'll camp out on Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. And they'll camp out on those verses like that. But many of those who preach the grace of God to be saved in the beginning revert immediately to works after salvation in order to keep you saved. There are a lot of, there are a lot of folks that will say, well, yeah, obviously we're saved by the grace of God. We're saved through faith, yes. But you've got to do this and this and this in order to stay saved. If it's by grace, and by the way, to be saved by grace means that we didn't earn anything. We didn't, we didn't do anything to merit God's favor. We didn't do anything to earn the salvation. It's by the heart of God that He gives to us His salvation. That's what it is to be saved by grace. If I didn't do anything to earn the salvation in the beginning, then exactly what is it that I could do to unearn salvation that was given to me by grace, not conditional upon myself, given to me by grace in the beginning. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul said, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? The point being that if, 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 if our approach to salvation is that we, we obey rules and regulations, that the Christian life is a to-do list, and, and it's thou shalt and thou shalt not, we misunderstand the concept of grace. We misunderstand what, this, what salvation looks like. In salvation, it's, it's not comprised of what we're against. And yet the average Baptist church and the average Christian life is characterized by what we are against, not what we're for. You, if you go to your neighbors out there 
and start asking them their opinion of your church, most of them will describe your church in terms of what you cannot do. And you know why? Because that's how you've communicated it to your, to your community. Because you've communicated faith, I've communicated faith, we've communicated faith. I'm not just picking on you. I'm saying we've done this to ourselves. We have defined our faith by what we are against. And we have defined our faith as rules and regulations. You've got to check off your to-do list. And as long as you meet your to-do list criteria, then, wow, you're faithful unto the Lord. We measure faithfulness of God by church attendance. As long as you come to church, you're faithful to God. If you don't come to church, you're not faithful to God. And we measure by church attendance. You know what? Some people come to church but don't pay attention. Are they still faithful to God? Some people are caring for an invalid parent or a child, and so they can't come to church. Does that make them unfaithful to God? See, we've measured, we, we measure our spiritual success and spiritual faithfulness oftentimes in legalistic terms. I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. We're just proud of ourselves because of that. But on the other end of that spectrum are those who think grace gives them a license to do whatever they want to. There are those who define their faith in legalistic terms as rules and regulations, do's and don'ts. But then there are those who say, hey, I'm saved, anything goes. And yet the Apostle Paul said in Romans 6, 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. I like the King James at that point. God forbid. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And so as we seek to be like Jesus and look like Jesus and talk like Jesus and think like Jesus and treat other people like Jesus would treat them, let us be very careful not to slip off into either of these ditches, the ditch of legalism or the ditch of license. But let us go faithfully with the Lord as he takes us down his path. So pastor, what are you asking us to do tonight? I would, I would say I'm asking you to do three things. Number one, clarify that your salvation is genuine. Be willing to, to ask the Lord tonight, is what I've been calling salvation the real thing? It's actually biblical to do that. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Clarify tonight that you truly are saved. If not, then settle it. Get saved tonight. Give your heart to Christ. Turn away from self and sin and trust Jesus who died on the cross, rose from the dead. Confess him as the Lord of your life. Do that tonight. Second thing is get on the same page with God about the goal of salvation. Get on the same page with God about the goal of salvation. The goal of salvation is not just to go to heaven. The goal of salvation is to look more like Jesus. And so look in the mirror of God's word tonight and see how much you resemble Jesus. And whatever doesn't look like Jesus, go to him tonight and say, Oh Lord, would you chip away this part of my life that doesn't look like you? Lord, there's something here in my heart that I know doesn't reflect you. God, would you chip that away? Lord, I've got resentment against somebody, and I know that's not the way you feel about them. Lord, chip that away from my heart. Lord, I've been gossiping and backbiting, and I've been slandering my friend or my, my enemy, and, and Lord, I know that's not the way you feel about them. Lord, chip that away out of my life. Lord, would you, would you make me look more like Jesus? There is a humility that is necessary in order to do that. Pride says, I look enough like Jesus to make it to heaven. I look, I, I look like Jesus enough, I don't have to do the, what you're talking about, preacher. Humility recognizes I don't look enough like Jesus. And Lord, I want you to do whatever is necessary to make me more like Jesus. And then third and finally, adopt Paul's maternal tone toward any and all Christians that God entrusts to you. If someone gets saved in your congregation, God has entrusted 
this newborn babe mm. to you. And when, when my wife and I, well, when my wife had our children, since I didn't actually give birth to my children, when my wife and I, though, we, we brought home our children, we brought both of our daughters home with this overwhelming sense of responsibility that God has given to us, these children. These children are not entrusted to our neighbors. These children were not entrusted to our parents. These children were not entrusted to anybody else. These children were entrusted to us. And it was our responsibility to nurture them and to care for them and to change their diapers and make sure they were fed. It was our responsibility. The Bible describes new Christians as babies in Christ. And if he births a child into your fellowship, then adopt that maternal tone that says, my little children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to dip you and drop you. I'm going to keep loving you and keep nurturing you and keep teaching you and keep training you until Christ is formed in you. Adopt that maternal tone across this fellowship. And I want to tell you, you demonstrate that kind of concern for new Christians and there is only heaven knows how much God will open the windows of heaven and pour new souls into this fellowship if you will take on that maternal tone. If you demonstrate you can be trusted with new babies, mm. God will send you a bunch of them. Yes. And there's nothing like new Christians coming to faith and falling in love with Jesus. Mm. Would you pray with me? I know that tonight's message is not your typical revival sermon, but I trust that God has spoken to your hearts. And I would challenge you tonight to do just what I suggested there at the end, to clarify that you truly are saved. I'm not here to create doubt. If you know that you know that you know that you know, then I can't cause doubt. But if a simple question, if a simple suggestion to examine yourselves shakes the very foundations of your faith, then maybe there's something that needs to be looked at. But tonight, clarify that you truly are saved. And then get on the same page with God about the goal of salvation. How much like Jesus do you really look? Are you becoming more and more like Jesus? Or is your Christ-likeness something that you speak about in past tense terms? It ought to be fresh every day. But I'm asking you as a church to adopt a maternal tone toward any and all new Christians that God sends your way. That's a decision that you will make on an individual level before you can make it on a congregational level. But I'm asking you to make that commitment to God. The pastor's going to be standing down front to receive you, and I'm asking you to come. If you need to be saved, if you need to pray to, to get something right between you and God, if you just want to pray for a lost friend or family member, or maybe how God's going to use you in the future of Bethel Baptist Church. You come as God's Holy Spirit leads. I want to pray, and when I say amen, we're going to stand to our feet, we're going to sing a song, and I'm inviting you to come. Gracious God, thank you for the time that you've given us in this place tonight. Lord, we don't take it lightly. We don't see it as chance or by accident that we are here. But Lord, you've invited us into this place. You have ordained these days that we would be together. And Lord, I trust that your word has been brought to our hearts as you have desired. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would massage the message into the deep recesses of our hearts tonight. And that, Lord, we would take to heart all that you have to say to us. Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That you're not just concerned about us getting saved. Not just concerned about us getting to heaven. Lord, you are even more concerned about heaven getting into us. And Lord, I pray that tonight that we would begin to take that more seriously than we've ever thought in our lives. Lord, have your will and your way, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
and amen. Examine yourself. 